yesterday, Paul, the guy that you know, make sure the stage looks okay for the videos if you guys ever watch them online. Uh, his his son was working at my house and doing some stuff, and I and I drove him home. And his son's 17 years old, and on the way home, uh, I I learned three things from his son, which I thought I'd share with you because they all just proved to me how old I am. Okay, uh, the first one on the way home is, dang it, what were they? I'm gonna like totally throw a blank. Uh, okay, so so the first the first one is that a Coca-Cola out of a vending machine at Magic Mountain costs three dollars seventy-five cents. I know, right? Right? I thought a buck was a lot. Three seventy-five. That is three dollars and seventy-five cents. Okay, that's like a whole five in the machine, and they don't even give you a dollar back. They give you like a Sacagawea coin or something. It's not. He's all. They give me a gold coin. I'm like, it's not really gold. You know, whatever. The second thing is, is he has no idea what roller skates are. There's these people. I know. These people rollerblading out here and, and this this girl like kind of does this and we're like oh look at that and I said oh the roller he goes and he tells me about inline skates and rollerblades and I go what about roller skates and he goes what are those I'm like okay I'm old I'm old and the third one is this the third one is this if you buy somebody lunch and they buy you dinner your dinner was free That's what I said. I said, you bought them lunch. Your dinner's not free. And he said, he says, no, 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 because I didn't pay for the dinner. I said, but you bought them lunch. Why didn't pay for dinner? That doesn't mean the dinner was free. I'm just saying. Somebody needs to go to some Dave Ramsey. Just public school math is what this is. Maybe this is maybe this is how our our uh, government's budget is the way it is. It didn't cost it didn't cost us anything to get yeah, free free dinner, not free lunch. But okay, so uh, a couple of things to tell you about. Uh, the first thing is if your kids are going to get baptized in their next baptism, there's an e-kids baptism class at 12:45 today. So bring them back, show up for that. I told Christy if you are not here on time, she can go home. So if your kids are going to be baptized, you better get your butt down here and show up. Okay. Second thing is our baptisms are on September 1st. Uh, that is Labor Day weekend. We do it that weekend because we don't do something on 4th of July. We do something more about Labor Day weekend. So we're going to do that with baptisms at the same time. Now at the September 1st barbecue, we are going. Element's going to provide tri-tip and bread. Yeah, wow. For free lunch. <laughs> We're coming to your house for dinner, though. Okay, so we're going to provide, try it yet. We're going to provide bread, beans, salsa, bottled water, and soda. I know. I couldn't believe how much we're providing. I'm like, what is wrong with us? Okay. Now, your job, your job is your, if your last name is A through L, you're going to bring a dessert of some sort. Okay? And, and I got to tell you, if you're like, oh, I'm going to bring some cookies, you can't bring six cookies because I will eat more than six cookies in a sitting. So if you're going to bring cookies, you make, oh, I brought six cookies, yay. Bring like three dozen. Because we used to have this thing where after baptisms were over, it was great. I had like tons of cookies left over, and now nothing. I don't know what's wrong with you people if you're not bringing enough cookies or if you're eating them all. But there's none left. And this is a serious issue to Jesus. <laughs> so, if you're going to bring cookies, a couple dozen at least is great. 
Uh, again, we have like 250, 300 people show up for these, so you should be there as well. It's not in the video yet, so I'm not, I can acknowledge it now, right? Yeah, okay. Anyway, okay. Uh, and then if your last name is M through Z, you're bringing a side dish. This is like, I don't know, macaroni salad, but that's horrible. So bring something else that's good. <laughs> or they gave me a microphone. Can you believe it? Okay. <laughs> or, or a salad of some sort, because after all that tri-tip, we're going to need to get some fiber and get regular. I am here to help. It's my job. So anyway, that, that's your thing. And again, remember, 250, 300 people. So there's a lot of people coming, but there's a lot of you too. So just make sure you bring something to share. Good? All right. Welcome to Element. If you are new, we are sorry for all the craziness. My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. There are Bibles in the back. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. And there are sermon notes on all the communion tables throughout the room. Inside the sermon notes, there are actually notes. That's why we call them sermon notes. And in there, uh, especially the most of the stupid summer, there's actually some different things that I will talk about that, or that, that I don't talk about in those sermon notes that we put in there. So there's some extra information. So you should probably read them at some point. That's why we do them. Uh, also, on the back of that, there's questions for either if you'd ask some friends or walk through yourself or go through with your gospel community. If you have a smartphone, you can download an app. It is called YouVersion. And YouVersion, you just click on Live. It'll bring us up by GPS in your smartphone. You'll get the sermon notes and the verses and all that goes along with today. Why don't you stand with me reading God's Word? We'll get started. Now, this is Psalm 103, verses 11 and 12. And it says, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that we would be a people who understand how far you have removed our transgressions from us, but also what that actually means, and how you call us to live and be this people of grace, understanding the forgiveness that you have given to us. So help us to live as a people who understand the fullness of your redemption in our lives. Amen. Have a seat. So this is week four of the Stupid Summer, our combined stupidity. Uh, If you are new, these are dumb things Christians believe that aren't actually true because we all know dumb people in our lives. Like apparently the latest statistic is that 90% of America thinks that reality TV is actually real. (laughs) And you're going, what? I'm in that 90%. I didn't know that. It's not... They have cameras on them, people. There's, it's not like, I didn't know there was a camera there. There's cameras. Pawn stars? Seriously. They follow them around. Okay, just, okay. Smart people believe dumb things as well. So we'll just watch. In Christianity, sometimes it's a cultural bias or something that was handed down for so many years that people just believe and accept, and it may not actually be true. Uh, history in Christianity is full of intelligent people who act on stupid assumptions, and it brings disastrous consequences in our lives. And there's this old carpenter's adage. It's called measure twice, cut once. I should live more by this adage. I was, I was putting up some casings on some doors this week. And my friend Pete gave me uh, enough to do them, and I cut one too short because I measured once and cut once, and it was an inch too short. And I'm like, curses, curses. So you measure twice, cut once, you get it right. Now, because once you cut something too short, it's forever going to be too short. You can't make it longer again. If you ever put, you know, floorboards on a house, you know this, right? Okay, good. So, 
So this same ideal also comes back to the idea in Christianity. When we are shown statistically to believe something for a long enough time, even if somebody comes along later and shows us it's wrong, we will still hold on to that untrue belief because we believed it for so long, we've defended it for so long, it just has to be true. So what you have to do as we walk through some of these things is you have to be willing to listen to what the scriptures say and maybe change your thinking a little bit on some stuff because today we are dealing with a subject that has been too long misunderstood and that is forgiving means forgetting. Uh, If you are a Christian, uh, forgiveness is not an option for you. It is a sacred duty we are called to by Jesus. I know some people who don't want to be a follower of Jesus Christ because they know that means they have to forgive people in their life, and they don't really want to do that. Forgiveness is spoken of all throughout the scriptures. It is the central message of the gospel. We are supposed to forgive, but how do you really forgive someone of something? It's hard to do, and it's even harder because almost no one's been shown what forgiveness really actually looks like. I know Christians who believe that forgiveness is pretending nothing happened. Oh, you really hurt me? Well, I'll just stick my head in the sand and act like it didn't happen. I know other people who think it's giving unlimited second chances. Oh, you punched me in the face. It's okay. Boom. Oh, you punched me in the face again. Boom. And you just uh, second chances over and over and over. Some people believe it's a fresh start with no consequences whatsoever, all baggage removed. Some people believe it is the full restoration of a broken relationship, complete with all privileges that came with it. I'll tell you, the dumbest idea is literally forgetting what happened. Where you wipe your memory clean, everything disappears. But so many people are taught that this is how you're supposed to forgive. I mean, when, when a new Christian, people go, oh, you know, God you know, forgives and he forgets. Anybody else taught that? Okay, so for the four of us, I'll talk to us, the four of us this morning, and we'll just deal with this issue. The rest of you, sorry you came because you're going to be really bored out of your skull because you already know this. Okay, um, what you're taught is that if you confess, then God forgives your sins and, and, and he forgets them. So if you were to confess twice, then God wouldn't remember what, you, what you're confessing about because he'd already forgotten it. And we're going to be like God, giving ourselves self-induced amnesia of some sort. And, but, and, and this makes some of you might want to tune me out here, but when God forgives, that's not what happens. God doesn't actually forget, in the, at least in the sense of how we define forgetfulness today. If you look at the word forget in any English dictionary, you'll find its primary meaning is the inability to recall something, as in, you forgot where you put your keys. We've all experienced this. I think I experience it more than anybody else. I actually have spare keys for my keys, so when I can't find my keys, I grab my spare key and then use that, and then I lose those keys. And then and I say, Mary Ann, I lost my keys. And she'd say, well, where'd you last leave them? And I said, if I knew that, <laughs> I wouldn't be asking the question. You know, which always then leads to where I need to ask for forgiveness because then I'm just sarcastic and mean. So anyway, but, but this, this, or, or maybe for you, it's not your keys. Maybe it's uh, you're late for a business meeting because you totally forgot about it. So you show up late and everybody's mad at you because you, you were late to that. It's the opposite of remembering. So when the Bible says God forgives our sins, he remembers them no more, a lot of people think he literally erases them from memory like they never happened. Like our sins become like my keys or the meeting that you missed. And so you have verses like Psalm 103, verse 12, which we started with. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. So God removes our sins as far as the east is from the west. You can't measure that distance. And so, you know, he doesn't remember them because it's, it's an immeasurable distance. Micah seven nineteen. he will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. He will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. He hurls our sin to the depths of the sea. Well, there's lots of places in the depths of the sea that we don't even have submarines that can go to. They get crushed with the pressure. So therefore, God can't get to those anymore. And so he just doesn't remember those things at all. You know, and so in, in Hebrews chapter 8, it says he remembers our iniquities no 
more. And so you can begin to see why this idea of forgiving is attached to forgetfulness, where it removes every trace of wrongdoing from memory. But that's not what those verses mean, and it's not how the word remember is used in the Bible. When the Bible speaks of God remembering something, it doesn't mean that something is right on the tip of his tongue, and then, oh, there it is, yeah, and then he remembers it and he says it out loud. That's not how God does it. Remembering in the sense of the scriptures has the idea that God renews his work in somebody's life. As we went through the book of Genesis, Genesis 8, Noah's on the ark, and it says, Genesis 8, verse 1, but God remembered Noah. So Noah's floating around for like five months or so, and you know he's probably wondering, did God forget about me out here on this boat? No, God remembered him. It doesn't mean an angel had to walk up to God and say, hey, God, you left the hose on, and that poor dude's been floating out there in that boat for a really long time. You may want to take care of that. He's getting really seasick. The family and all the animals are sneaking. You may want to go take care of that. That's not what it means. It means that God renews his work in Noah's life. Now, from Noah's perspective, again, it might have seemed like God had forgotten about him, like God didn't know where he was, but God hadn't forgotten because God doesn't forget. Now, when you come to the scriptures, there are some very ugly sins listed. Adam's failure as a father and a husband, David's adultery, Moses murdering someone, Peter's denial about Jesus and then cussing about it. Each is prominently featured. Each is widely known and fully forgiven. But if forgiveness means God literally has no memory of those events, you have a major theological dilemma on your hand because you and I know things that God isn't aware of. The Bible contains stories that God just couldn't remember. You know what we call that? Stupid. It's a stupid summer, okay? That's where, boy, just, all my jokes just fall flat today. I don't know why. So what, what, is the, what does the Bible mean when it God remembers our sins no more? It means that he no longer responds to you and I in light of those sins. They no longer derail our relationship with him. They no longer garner his wrath. They are gone completely from our account. It doesn't mean he can't remember all the things that we've done. An omniscient God doesn't forget stuff. And this is important to understand because whenever the call to forgive morphs into this idea of forgetting, a lot of people want to opt out. I mean, we feel like, yeah, I need to forgive, but I can never live up to the call that God has in my life because I can never really forget that. It's really hard to give myself self-induced amnesia. And so when forgiving becomes synonymous with forgetting, it tends to lead to spiritual confusion. It leads to, first off, anger at God all the time. When getting right with God doesn't make everything right in the world, we think something's wrong, so we get angry at God. You know, we think when we, God forgives us, he should remove all traces and consequences of a sin. I know a lot of people who have changed from their past that they feel just too strong to break free from because they can't let it go out of their minds. I know some tax cheaters who can't shake the IRS. I know an alcoholic dad who will never win back his family. I know a former porn addict who will never regain his wife's trust or intimacy with her no matter how hard he tries. And at some point, all these people became angry at God because they assumed that forgiving meant forgetting and God should just take care of all of these things that they had themselves had broken. And so they felt like God didn't keep his part of the bargain. Hey, I confessed, I repented, God, you're supposed to take care of all this other stuff. Now, in reality, God has forgiven, God has come, God has redeemed exactly like he has promised all throughout the scriptures. Just like he forgives all the saints of old, but it is not the same thing as forgetting. The second thing it leads to is unreasonable expectations. Because we tend to assume if someone has forgiven us, whatever happened in the past then just should be gone. It's a dead issue. The other person should get over it and they should move on. But it is unreasonable to think that someone else should ever just get over it. You know, what that does is it unfairly turns the tables on somebody else that we have wronged. It assumes that their pain should magically disappear. And if it doesn't, we write them off as an unforgiving jerk and there's something wrong with them. It's like, oh yeah, I may have run over your grandma with my car, but I said I'm sorry. What's wrong with you? Come on. You know, our, our sin now becomes their problem. In reality, forgiveness takes time. Healing takes time. It's a lengthy 
process. The expectation of those that we've wronged, we're like, we should just simply get over it. You know, that, that is not fair to them. It's unreasonable, but it's also emotionally unhealthy. Because people who can't remember what happened to them or who bury their pain are not spiritually mature. They're mentally and emotionally handicapped. And the third thing it leads to is giving up. I think the most significant things that equating forgiving and forgetting is it makes forgiveness seem completely out of reach for all of us. Because for some reason, we just can't forget what happened to us and painful memories stick. I mean, we might pray, but they're never erased. The pain could lessen. You know, the memories may fade. The nightmares may disappear, but are they gone for good? Not really that often. Now, we can and should get over the little things, like, you know, the social slights, the unkind word, maybe the person who steals your parking spot, like you're, like you're hanging out at the Costco, and it's like, I'm sitting here for five minutes, that guy's backing out, you got your turn signal on, somebody's like, oh, whoop, and pulls right in. Let it go. You just... just let it go. You'll be okay. You know, but it comes to real hurts and injustices of life. It takes time. And eventually, you know, you should work past them, but it takes time. And some people mistakenly decide it's not possible to forgive when it comes to the big stuff so they feel like they can never really follow Jesus. And that's not how Jesus calls us to forgive. So how does God forgive? Well, first off, when it comes to forgiveness, you have to understand there are two realms, two realms. The first one is the spiritual and the eternal. Forgiveness wipes the slate clean in this regard. God doesn't forget what we've done, but through the blood of Christ, he wipes us clean. He treats us as if our sins have never happened. Spiritual and eternal consequences are all removed. If you're before a court judicially at this point, our record is clear. But then there is also the earthly and the temporary. God's forgiveness seldom really, if ever, removes all the consequences and restores all that we've broken. But what it's supposed to do is begin to bring about second chances. You have David's infamous adultery with Bathsheba in the scriptures. Now, he doesn't even fess up to this. It's his friend Nathan who comes up and just yells at him and calls him on the carpet until David finally says, okay, yeah, you're right. And David finally comes clean with this. He acknowledges his sin, he repudiates it, and he cries out to God. And to his great relief, God assures him he's forgiven, that his life's going to be spared. But God's forgiveness did not take away the earthly consequences of what happened. As a matter of fact, in 2 Samuel 12, David's informed the sword will never depart from your house. He's always going to be at war. He was told that his own son, Absalom, is eventually going to dishonor David in public like David dishonors Bathsheba's husband in private. The temple that David always wanted to build, God said another person is going to build that temple, David, not you. And the son that he conceives on his night of passion with Bathsheba would die a few days after birth. And so God isn't asking you and I to pretend like nothing happened or set aside all the earthly and legal consequences of a crime. It is perfectly appropriate to pursue justice and do all that you can to make sure justice is served. Forgiveness doesn't mean removing all consequences. But you also must understand God did not doom David to a life of hopeless regret. Regret God gave him second chances. And, and through David's consequences, though these consequences remain his entire life, God gave him a genuine opportunity to become something new and different in the eyes of God than this murderous adulterer that he technically still was. David returns to the path of obedience. He starts following God, and God restores him to the highest levels of youthfulness. A lot of David, the Psalms that David writes comes about after David and Bathsheba. And when Jesus comes, Jesus actually quotes these Psalms that David wrote after the sin with Bathsheba showing that God has fully restored him. And so God's dealing with David model for us a pattern of forgiveness that retains some earthly consequences while offering a genuine opportunity for restoration. And so there are times people in our lives, they deserve second chances, but it's not always a get-out-of-jail-free card. So the questions become, how do we live this kind of forgiveness in the real world then? You know, how, what consequences are appropriate and which ones are punitive where you just want to make somebody pay? How far do you go with second chances? Does forgiving mean trusting someone again even when you know they're untrustworthy? Does it give people who have hurt us the right to barge back into our lives? And do you have to 
to invite them over for dinner or Thanksgiving or Easter dinner or whatever it is, or maybe you have a wedding and they're coming to that. The answer to that is understanding what the Bible actually says about forgiveness. So open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18. And I'll give you four things about what the Bible actually says about forgiveness. Number one in this, as you're turning to Matthew 18, is you stop keeping score. Stop keeping score. Stop keeping score. Just saying it. I wish you quit saying that. I'm keeping score of how many times he said it. Stop keeping score. Okay? Biblical forgiveness doesn't keep score. Matthew 18, verse 21. It says, Then Peter came up to Jesus and said to him, Lord, how, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. So when Jesus spoke of forgiving 77 times or at 77s, he wasn't suggesting you keep a tally. Like, oh, you're at 76, buddy. One more and you are done because I got a list. I mean, just last week, look what you did. So he's, he's also not using hyperbole. He's not using exaggeration. What he's doing is he's reversing what's called the law of retribution. Uh, if you were here through Genesis, Genesis 4, you got a guy named Lemek. This is where this starts. If you're, the Jews who Jesus is saying this to would understand what he's saying. When it comes to keeping track of life's hurts and injustices and conflicts, we tend to use creative math. We have this amazing ability to undercount our own sins towards other people and make theirs towards us just gigantic and huge. Think about this. Think about the last time that somebody cut you off when you were driving. Okay? How you feel? It was probably me that cut you off. Just let you know that that's how it works when I drive because I'm totally oblivious. Somebody was telling me this morning, oh, I was honking at you saying hi. And I, do, you think, do you think I was mad at you? And I go, I didn't even hear you because... I don't pay attention to anything when I'm driving. Unless you text me. I'll be like, oh, what's going on? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no phone zone. All right, whatever. Okay. So, so think about that. You know, somebody cuts you off. What do you do? You get really irritated. Don't they realize how important I am to myself? They cut me off. What are they doing? Not even a wave of the hand. What's wrong? And so either you, like, give them the universal finger of friendship, or, or you honk your horn, or you ride their bumper, or you do something to let your displeasure known. Even if you don't say anything, it's like in the back of your head, like, oh, I can't believe they did that. And you don't pray, dear Jesus, please help them to love you. Pray, dear Jesus, run them off the road so I can laugh as they run into the tree or something like that. And, and again, now, how does the offending party see it? And I, again, I know this because I'm usually the offending party. <laughs> I do these things like this. You know, how do they see it? Have, have you ever accidentally cut somebody off? Maybe pulled him without your blinker. Oh, just... And they're all, ah, you know. And then, and then what happens to the people you cut off? And you're like, oh, I'm so sorry I didn't see you. Oh, and you're like, oh. And then they're behind you and they're like, honk. And they're like, finger of friendship. And they're like, riding your butt. And then what do you do eventually? And you're like, how dare they? Don't they know how sorry I was? I mean, seriously, I did this. You know, I did this. Don't they know? And then they ride your butt. And then what do you do? You slam on your brakes. You get off my butt, buddy. How dare you ride my butt? I'm sorry. Right? And then it just starts to escalate. And then people start yelling and then everything. And then road rage happens and, and all this. You stop keeping score. You stop. And, guys, this happens in marriages. It happens in friendships. It happens in churches. You must stop keeping score. You've got to let it go. You've got to let it go. And then you stop keeping track of how many times you let it go and they didn't let it go. Well, I'm always letting it go and you never let it go. That's not letting it go. That's keeping score. Stop keeping score. Number two, get a good mirror. 
And you're like, what in the world does that mean? I'll explain it to you, okay? Uh, Matthew 18, starting verse 23, Jesus keeps going. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and his children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii and seizing him, he began to choke him, which is apparently how you seize people, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him. He must have let go of his neck by that point. Have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me and should not you not have mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So my heavenly father will do to every one of you who do not forgive your brother from your heart. Ooh, chilling words right there. How my heavenly father will treat you. Now we can argue over how literally to take Jesus' words there and, and what that means and you know the king restoring the debt and stuff like that. But one thing is for certain when you read that, when it comes to forgiveness, it is foolish to refuse to forgive other people knowing God has already forgiven you. This is why you start with a look in the mirror. It doesn't start with the wrong that was done to you. It starts with the wrongs that you have done to others. And you say, what have I done? How have I been forgiven? And then you offer that same forgiveness to other people. Colossians chapter 3, verse 12 and 13, Paul says, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. The third thing scripture talks about forgiveness is rebuke when wrong, forgive when asked. You know, some people, you know, don't want to be forgiven. You know, they, and what happens if they just keep at it? Is the Christian response to ignore it, you know, to confront it, teach them a lesson they're never going to forget with your car, you know. And some people have said, you know, the Christian thing to do is you forgive even before you're asked. You know, if any injustice or annoyance takes place, so if you have like the school bully and he's always stealing your lunch, you just make an extra sandwich on the way to school and give that to him when you get there. If the dog next door barks all night and their owners won't put it away, well, just shut the window, turn up the TV, or buy some earplugs, whatever you got to do. I and mean, maybe you've gone through a, a horrible divorce and you have like a custody agreement and your, and your ex refuses to honor the custody agreement. You know, what do you do? Forgive before they ask. Well, didn't Jesus overlook injustices done to him? Didn't he refuse to retaliate? Didn't he ask the Father to forgive those who are putting him to death? Didn't he in Matthew 5.39 say, turn the other cheek? And in verse 41, go, say, go the extra mile. Well, yes, he did. But that's not actually what those verses mean. In the context, it's about serving, not allowing injustices to take place. Now, Jesus does save the soldiers who crucify him in Luke 23, 34. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. But that's the point. The Roman executioners did not know what they were doing. They did not know who they had on their hands at that point. But Jesus also was not so quick to let the Pharisees and the religious leaders off the hook. In fact, rather than laying off the hook, he goes and he runs them all out of the temple, and he threatens them with hell. Hell is hot forever is a long time. You better change. I mean, seriously. (laughs) And so as Christ followers, we're to forgive. But that's not the same thing as overlooking everything people do or say. Yes, Jesus did say, turn the other cheek. But he also said in Luke 17, verse 3, if your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. In other words, there is a time and a place for confrontation, rebuke, and pointing out our displeasure at what's been done. But more importantly, calling people back to the path of following Jesus. 
The call to forgive doesn't mean you go through life as a punching bag. It doesn't mean you don't speak up. It doesn't mean rolling over either. But it does mean pointing to who Christ is in all things. And the fourth thing is you must let God be God. You must let God be God. Open to Romans chapter 12. You must let God be God. Two truths. There is a God. He is not you. Okay? You must let God be God. Ultimately, forgiveness can only be given, can only be received by those who want it, but we can always give it all the time. And for those who don't want it, especially those who continue to hurt you, what do you do? Well, there's another response in Scripture, and it's a response that most Christians aren't aware of and they want to hide from. It is called revenge. And you're like, what? Sweet. Thanks for the sermon notes. I am making a list. You know, I know. I know that's what you're saying. But there's, there's a biblical and appropriate time for revenge, but it's a different kind of revenge than you and I think and most of the world knows. It does not return evil for evil. Romans 12, verse 17 goes like this. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. How do you get revenge? Kindness and mercy. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. What it does, it turns all vengeance over to God. You ask him to do the honors in his perfect timing. Now, you also see that Paul fully lived this out. The Apostle Paul talks a lot about forgiveness, our need for it, and how to give it to other people. But Paul also prays to God to do something about his enemy, Alexander. Uh, it's in one passage, in 2 Timothy 4.14, Paul says the Lord's going to repay him. In 1 Timothy 1.20, he talks about turning Alexander over to Satan. I mean, seriously, it's like when the Apostle Paul says, I'm going to hand you over to Satan, I'm going to be like, I'm going to pee my pants right now because that's going to be a little, little scary. It is okay to pray for God to take care of things. Romans 12, 19, never avenge yourselves, leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if and when you do that, you still need to leave room for God's grace because God loves to turn his enemies and our enemies into his friends and our friends. And if he chooses to do so, you can't complain about it. You can't be like, oh, I was praying that you would like take them out, God, not make them a believer. Dang it, I want them to burn forever. That's how we go sometimes, people. I mean, understand this. You were once God's enemy. He forgave your sin. He made you his friend. He did that for you. That's what grace is all about. This is letting God be God. You let him do that for other people as well. And sometimes I really worry about talking about this because I want to get over this stupid idea that, that forgiving is forgetting. But I also don't want you to walk out if you have a hard time you know, forgiving, feeling justified for not forgiving. You need to forgive. Okay, you need to. Your hard heart is callous, and God needs to break it by his grace because it becomes a trust issue in who he is. Now, does forgiveness mean restoring a broken relationship to an original state? Of course not. There's no way it can be restored to original state, but I know a lot of relationships that have been broken because of sin that actually become stronger on the backside because they've dealt with it. Something new comes out of that that's deeper and stronger than it ever was before. Does it mean you have to trust the other person again? Not necessarily, but it can also mean that trust can actually be deeper and stronger on the back end. Trust and close relationship, forgiveness, are not necessarily related, but they can and should go together given enough time and if both people are following who Jesus is. Because forgiveness puts all bitterness aside, puts aside all plans for our own revenge. It doesn't make somebody trust. We either turn them back into someone who follows Jesus. Trust has to be earned. But it means that we let go of the bitterness and we trust God for what's coming about on the backside. 
And forgiveness remains an incredibly tough thing to do. It doesn't come easy. It doesn't come naturally. We all want to fight it because when anybody hurts us, we want them crucified like Jesus. We want to see their pain and understand that they understand how bad we hurt. We want to see that in them. And so ultimately, forgiveness becomes a supernatural act motivated, empowered by God's Spirit in us on inside out. This means we need to trust God when he calls us to forgive because any relationship to be restored, it must start in the place of forgiveness. And so there are a couple things as we end this that I want to tell you about that can help with this inner prompting of God in your heart to learn how to begin to forgive, to weed out all that resistance that you have. And the first one is this. We call it the prayer of permission. The prayer of permission, this is a prayer when you have no desire or motivation to do what you know you should do, what God's calling you to do. And so it's a simple prayer where you give God permission to change the way you feel about a person or a situation. You don't say, oh, God, help me, because that's never really going to work, because you really don't want help. <laughs> you really just want to keep going the way that you are and be like, I want to be angry. God, help me not to be angry. I'm still angry, you know, because you know it doesn't work. And so you take a step back, you give God permission. Not that God needs your permission, but it opens you up to the change. You begin to change the way that you feel to make you want to forgive. And the beauty of this prayer is it forces you to squarely face the hardness of your own heart. And once you quit fighting, you know, this, this result, you know, th- this, the, the result almost becomes a rapid shift in thinking. And forgiving no longer seems like such a bad idea, in which it no longer seems like a bad idea. It's not hard to do. The second thing you should do in this is what I call a sin walk. Okay, that doesn't mean you walk down to the spearmint rhino. I'm doing a sin walk. Woo! I got my party beads. You know, that's not what I'm talking about. You know, what this is, it's like a literal walk where you maybe walk down the sidewalk, walk down the beach. Maybe it's a drive in a car. And you do your best to remember, you know, all the times you have sinned against others, the things that, that you have done. And, and all, maybe, maybe it's the first stolen cookie, you know, the last country music CD you purchased. <laughs> Something, you know, the last time you put a ringtone on your phone and I called you and it was country music, I had to listen to it. <laughs> Jason Harris. Whatever it is, you know. <laughs> Why? Now, why? Because it usually exposes our righteous anger as not being so righteous after all. That's what it does. It is humbling. It renews our awe and gratitude for the forgiveness that we have all received, the incredible grace that God has given to you and I. Because forgiving is a really big deal. And it's not just for those who have done the little things that irritate us. It's for the big things as well. And when we offer forgiveness to people who really have no excuse, I mean, for some things the world considers unforgivable, we become the most like Jesus. Ephesians 5.1, be imitators of God as dearly loved children. What we have to remember is Jesus died for our sins. He never committed any. He died for our sins. He died for us, for people who had no right to be forgiven. And I think that's why it's such a big deal to him that we learn how to forgive as well. Because he is a good God. So today we need to learn how to forgive, to begin to set that bitterness and anger aside and allow God to actually move and work in our hearts. And this is one of the reasons we talk about communion every week. Because communion, every time you come to it, in the back of your mind should be thinking, this is kind of like a little sin walk. Because you're walking up and you're thinking about, man, Jesus died for me. This is what it took place for me to be forgiven and restored. And so you walk up and you lay all those burdens there. And you walk away in a place of true humbleness and true grace. That's why you break that cracker like Christ's body is for broken for us. That's why you dip it in the wine of the grape juice that reminds us of his blood that was shed for you and I so that we can be a forgiven and redeemed and restored people. Uh, the band's going to come up. They do do a couple songs, and we invite you guys to, again, take communion. There'll be some deacons and elders in the back. And if you need prayer, maybe you're in a spot today where you feel like, I just cannot forgive. 
You know, I, I am so hurt. I am so burdened. I, I just don't know what to do about that. Well, go and pray with them. I mean, maybe they can help, you know, talk to you about it and help set you on a path that can begin that process because it is a process, and it does take time, and we're, and we're not denying that. And God never denies that in Scripture. So you start that process and begin to walk through it. There's offering boxes on the side and one on the back. We give because God gave so much to us. Giving then is simply part of our worship. And so we give that opportunity every week. And there's some food and stuff in the back. Um, is there still food in the back, by the way? Yeah. Okay, good. So there's, still, there's a ton this morning. You missed the, the homemade macaroons. They were awesome. So, uh, but the reason we do that is so that you guys can connect to other people. You know, we don't just put the food there so you eat your cookies and get a sugar rush and leave. It's so that you can actually begin to connect to others. Because when you have a problem with somebody else and you need to go and you need other people around you. You know, did you go talk to them yet? Did you deal with this yet? And you can walk through some of these things and talk talk it out. Then they can say after you talk with them, so how did it go? Did you say everything you needed to say? Did they say what they needed to say? People can hold you accountable and walk with you through life because we are not meant to do life alone. And in forgiveness and understand what this is, we do it with other people. You know, if there's no one around, apparently there'd be no one to ever have to forgive, right? <laughs> because no one ever hurt you. But unfortunately, or fortunately, we live with other people. And you hurt people and they hurt you. And forgiveness goes around and helps us to understand the grace of God better. And so we live lives, letting go of the bitterness, offering forgiveness. Whether people accept or not, you let go of the bitterness and you let God be God. You stop keeping score. Let him take care of it. Because he is good. And if we begin to live this way, I think the world around us will begin to change. I think they'll begin to understand that, that God does forgive, that God does offer hope, that God does offer renewal and redemption. Because look at that knucklehead over there, and God forgave him, and look at what's going on in his life now. Because God does. He forgives us. I'm, I swear, if he can love and forgive a knucklehead like me, he can do it for you too. And so that's how we must live. Why don't you guys pray with me? Father, this morning, I ask that we would be a people who understand the grace and the depth of your forgiveness and the hope that you also provide for us. That sometimes we are a people who see the wrongs done to us as completely unforgivable. And I ask that you would have us understand that even the wrongs done to us have been forgiven at the place of the cross. And so we would live as a people who sees our sins wiped away, our relationship with you restored, that we are the ones who have been forgiven much, and so we are the ones who are to love those around as much as well. Understanding the heart of our great God who sought his people out to redeem and restore them. And so have us live lives outside of these walls. When we come into places where forgiveness is warranted, even in places where it's not. We would first think about you and what you have done. And we would base our response upon that. Trusting you first and foremost in all things. Honoring you first and foremost in all things. So that all glory and honor goes to you. And your people are restored to what they were meant to be. Thank you for loving and saving us. Amen.